worship. So, um, well, we're going to end a sermon series today. We've been walking through this discipleship 101. Uh, no doubt, a title I, I stole from somebody. I'm not that creative. Uh, stole the graphic from the internet. So, but that's what I've called it. As, as we've gone through, really, uh, chapters five through seven of the book of Matthew, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture first this morning. I know I kind of give you an intro usually, but I'm just going to start out reading what is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. If you want to read with me in your Bibles, turn there. Uh, you'll see the passage on the screen, but I'll give you a couple minutes to turn to Matthew chapter 7 or look on your phone or however you read the Bible. And and our passage will start in verse 12. Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus begins saying, So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only if you find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn, bu thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the ha that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice... As like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And so as we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, I'm really struck by the motivation of Jesus' preaching. When we consider everything, remember, this is everything that he said, the Sermon on the Mount, that he's concluding from what we've heard about not worrying, from what we've heard about prayer, from what we've heard about loving others. And he's concluding all of that with the words that we just read. And, and I've when I think about Jesus' motivation for, for preaching and I think about mine, I, I come to this, very real, this, this realization that I've not always had the same motivations as Jesus when I've preached. 
I remember uh, as, as a young teenager, I, I remember my, my pastor who was, I, I loved Brother Ed. I've talked about him before, but, but man, he was a fiery preacher. And hardly a, sun, a, a Sunday went by when he would issue the call. You know, when it came time as we have an invitation, he would issue the call. You need to get right with the Lord. Get right or get left, right? You've heard a preacher issue that call before. And, and, and that was a normal Sunday. And somehow I came to the, the, the understanding that, that the whole point of preaching a sermon was to make people feel bad. That's what I thought the point was. To, to, and some people still think that. Good job stepping on my toes this morning, preacher. And maybe you've said that before. Maybe you don't think I step on your toes enough. I, I don't know. But, but I came under the impression that that was the point. To, to, to make people feel bad. To make people... Uh, convicted over their sin. And I even preached a sermon one time as a teenager. I remember it, it was a youth-led service. And I preached a sermon entitled, The State of the Church. And you don't have to guess that I told them the state of the church was real bad in that sermon. And, and, and I, I scolded people for not coming for the right reasons, for being immature in their walk with the Lord, for, for being more concerned about being entertained and, and feeling good than following Christ. And I issued an invitation and I told people they needed to get right. And you know what? A bunch of people did. Or at least it seemed like they did. They came down and they prayed and, and, and they made a big show of it. And I thought, I preached a good sermon. But the problem was, when I look back on that, was I was preaching to the Sunday night crowd. I was preaching to the crowd that was there because they wanted to support a teenage preacher wannabe. Who, in all reality, were, were the most committed members of the church. And so they came and, and they got right probably because they wanted me to feel like I preached a good sermon. I, I don't know. And then I got to college and, and my... My heroes, my mentors, so to speak, went from being fundamentalist Baptist preachers to intellectual Baptist professors. And, and every time they opened their mouth, it seemed like I was learning something new and absorbing some, some new information. And that was good, except I don't know if you've ever heard an intellectual preach a sermon. They don't always preach in the most engaging and exciting ways. And I remember taking a class called Biblical Interpretation with Dr. Rick Johnson. And, and the class was amazing. But I remember his first day and he reminded me of, of the guy, uh, the, the character that Ben Stein played on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Do you remember? And, and he enters class and he says, welcome to Biblical Interpretation. This is a very challenging class. And it was. And I loved it. Except that I remember preaching a sermon during that time of my life entitled, Who were the Amalekites and where did they come from? Don't you wish you'd have been there for that one? And then I'm sure there were periods after that in my life where I just missed the mark. I know there were when it came to preaching. And, and as I've grown in my understanding of, of what the point of preaching a sermon is, I've gone from, from one end where I thought, well, the whole point is to make people feel bad, to be emotionally convicted of their sin. I'm not saying that's not something that should happen, but, but that was the whole point for me at one time. I went from that side to the other side of thinking, well, every time I open my mouth, people need to learn something new. And I've come to this conviction that really the point, the point of me preaching a sermon 
is so that so that the people that God has has entrusted to me, you folks at this time, right? So that those people will, number one, believe the Christian faith. And number two, live the Christian faith. That's the point. And if I'm not helping you do that, I'm not really preaching a sermon. And so that's what I think preaching is about. The problem is I don't always live the Christian faith very well. Remember, not long ago I was, <clears throat> I was fussing at Emily for something that I can't even remember. And uh, it was one of those things where, you know, as a parent, when, when there's just no excuse, you know, and, and I was fussing at her and, and she would try to, to give an excuse and, and I would cut her off. You ever done that to your child? And, yeah, but yeah, no, 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 there's no excuse. And finally, out of frustration and, and exasperation, she begins to cry. And she says, Dad, you're not treating me very nicely. And, and you said that Jesus, Jesus says we're supposed to treat others the way that we want to be treated. And how would you feel? How would you feel if I interrupted you and wouldn't let you speak? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't say that true disciples have to be perfect. That they never make mistakes. They never mess up as parents. He never says that disciples have to always preach a wonderful, well-balanced sermon or know everything about the Amalekites. What he says as he concludes, <clears throat> as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount is that true disciples follow him in a way that they are recognized. They're not perfect. They don't get it right every time, but, but people see them as disciples. They're recognized by the very things that mark their lives as being different. And as we talk about some of the things that Jesus says disciples are recognized by, remember, this is, this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the same way that, that sermons do today, Jesus is really pushing for a decision as he's talking to his disciples. Now, he doesn't ask someone to come and play a keyboard or a piano. And he doesn't say every head bowed and every eye closed. And if you're ready to, to be a Christian and to follow me, you need to come forward and sign a card and join the church. He doesn't say that. But he's pushing for a decision that is as deeper than an emotional feeling. It's deeper than something that they've learned in their minds. He's pushing for a decision that, that changes the way that they orient, the way that they live their whole lives. And so he tells them, the verse on your screen, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father that is in heaven. And he says, when they do, it's evident. It's recognized. So we'll, we'll hit some things that Jesus says disciples are recognized by this morning. The first thing he says is disciples are recognized by their choices. I mean, they choose to live a life that is different. When I think about the choices we have as a society, we have so many choices. And that's really characterized by, by some of the things that are popular. Any, anytime we leave Gatesville, if we go to Waco uh, or Temple, just in, anywhere that's a bigger place that has a Starbucks, we have to stop there. Do you know that, that Starbucks is, is said if, if you really utilized all the different drink combinations you could utilize at Starbucks, there are over 80,000 drink combinations, according to their CEO. And some of them are pretty basic. You could just get a regular coffee or a decaf coffee. Or you could get uh, a grande ice sugar-free vanilla latte with soy milk. Or you could get a decaf soy latte with an extra shot of cream. Or a non-fat frappuccino with extra whipped cream and chocolate sauce. 
Here's my favorite. You could get a venti, iced, skinny, hazelnut macchiato with sugar-free syrup, an extra shot of espresso, light ice, no whipped cream. There's just a few of your choices, right? Could you imagine one day if Starbucks said, you know, it's really crazy. It's really gotten out of hand. And, and all the stuff that we, we make is just, we're just going to go back to the basic model. We're just going to have regular coffee and you can have decaf or regular. And those are your choices. Well, they'd close within a, within a day, wouldn't they? That's their model, providing as many choices as, pos as possible. There's another business. It's, it's not a, a coffee shop. It's a grocery store chain. And they, they've succeeded, though, based on the opposite business model. They're based, or they were based in Germany. And they started about 70 years ago when two brothers took over their family grocery store. And they took over this little grocery store in a mining town. And, and, and grocery stores in this area just had the very basics, about 250 items for the miners and their families and the steel workers for them to live on. Nothing special, nothing fancy. And then in the 50s and 60s, Germany's economy started growing. And, and Germany had a middle class all of a sudden. And so supermarkets followed suit. And they started providing a little bit glitzier stores with more choices and more specialty items. But this one specific store said, we're going to keep it simple. We're not going to change our business model. In fact, we think that people will be attracted to us because of this very simple and basic business model. And you know that grocery store today is called Aldi. And everywhere they go, they're succeeding. They're doing well. And it's because they don't have near as much stuff as your regular grocery store has. And because of that, because they carry a lighter inventory, they're able to offer bigger discounts. And, and so people go to them and, and they, they spend money there. But, but I think, as, as being a peculiar shopper, I think there's even something about them that people find more appealing than just the discounts. I think there's something about going into a store to buy salad dressing. And, and, and when you've got to buy a bottle of ranch salad dressing, and you don't have to choose between buttermilk ranch or zesty ranch, or original ranch, or light ranch, or creamy ranch, you just buy ranch. Maybe not to you, but that just appeals to me that here's the choice. You don't have a, a million choices, you just got two. You just have two, and that's all you have to choose from. They're succeeding, and they're doing well. And Jesus says the path that leads to discipleship is not the one that leads to more choices, it actually leads to fewer choices. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only if you find it. You know, Jesus is not saying anything here. We know this. And, and he's not saying anything to his disciples that they would find all that different. They have sayings like this in the Old Testament. In the book of Proverbs, it says, There's a way that seems right to people. But it's actually wrong. It actually leads to death. It's that same idea. There's two ways that you can pick. And, and the, the, the smaller one is actually the best one, even though it might be harder. And so Jesus' disciples recognized that. They worshiped a God that they really understood as being kind of limiting, you know, prescribing certain things. And the new thing that Jesus is saying to his disciples is not, hey, God has some very peculiar expectations. He's saying that if you follow me, you can actually walk on the path that God 
wants you on. This, this difficult, small, hard road. You can do that. You can walk in that way because, as, Jesus, as we know Jesus says in the book of John, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And so we choose that. And by extension, it influences all of our other choices. You know, my children don't understand how when you make one choice, it affects all of your other choices. Ask a kid, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? They want to be a doctor. They want to be an astronaut. And they want to be a teacher. And they want to do all those things, right? They don't get that if you pick one of those things, it's, it's going to render the other two, boy, you can't do it. Or at least not have any kind of life, right? And we say, that's obvious. But then we, we attempt to try and be faithful to Christ. And, and then we make really crazy, weird, ridiculous choices on the other hand. We attempt to follow Christ depending on what activity is going on and how much of our attention that activity is taking up. We attempt to follow Christ and, and, and half of our family might go to church and, and half might not. And then we wonder, well, how come our kids are struggling to get the message? It's because, because we're not all doing it. We're not all following Christ. What if we really let our choice to follow Jesus influence all of our other choices? It would limit some things. We might give up some things. But it would lead to the way that Jesus is trying to get his, his disciples to follow. So Jesus says disciples are recognized by their choices. And then as a result of their choices, he says disciples are recognized by what they produce, by their fruit. You know, I read a, a news story. It was a few years old, but, but I have to believe that it's, it's probably still happening. And it, it said, what would you, how would you respond if, if you read that Cookie Monster stands accused of shoving a two-year-old? That Super Mario is charged with groping a woman? That, uh, who's the other one? That Elmo was, was, was arrested for anti-Semitic slurs. All this was really in, in a news story. Uh, and it's describing a situation that is, that is occurring in, in Times Square in New York. Uh, you have people who are considered street performers. And so they buy these suits of these well-known characters. And, and they dress them. Sometimes there's three or four Elmos in the same vicinity. And, and they walk around and tourists see them. And they want to take pictures with them and talk to them. And they do that, and they do it for tips. And it's legal as long as they don't obstruct traffic and as long as they don't explicitly ask for money. That, that's covered under the, the street performer law. And they can do that. But what's happening is, is it's so crazy in that area in New York. There's so much going on that people see these characters, and they just assume, oh, they're just part of some company or act or whatever and, and so they take pictures with them and, and they walk off and they don't give them a tip and, and, and you have these people that have, that have bought these suits and they're wearing them and they're hot and they're worn out and they're aggravated and, and they're not getting compensated for it and, and so they act out and, and then when you see Cookie Monster smoking a cigarette or hear Elmo cussing you think that's, that's not really Cookie Monster that's not really that's not the real Elmo is it as Jesus emphasizes the importance of being a disciple, he says, this is what a real disciple looks like. And, and I think Jesus probably is looking ahead and, and knowing that, that one day there will be people all over the world that claim to be Christians. And there will be some people that do it just because they get something out of it. There's some kind of false gain to it. 
There will be people that do it and, and they don't really live it. There will be people that promote false ideas. And really, he has to look no further than his own religious history, doesn't he? To, to, to look at the prophets that really were from God, like Jeremiah that said, God said, you're going to have, you're going to be speaking to a people that are ever hearing or ever seeing, but never perceiving. Or Ezekiel, who, who prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But he was opposed and ignored because the people didn't like what he had to say. And so Jesus warns his disciples, here's how you know what a true prophet is. They, they bear fruit. Every good tree, he says, verses 17 and 18, bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You know, from the distance, in Jesus' day, if you looked... If you looked at the blackberries on a, on a buckthorn bush, really small berries, they'd look like plump grapes. Or if you looked at some of the, 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 the flowers on certain thistles, sometimes they would look like figs. But as you got closer to those things, you recognize, hey, that's not really what they are. And so what begins in verse 15 as this warning, as this exhortation against false prophets. I can, I can see Jesus' disciples listening to that and turning that on themselves and thinking, well, well does he know? Does, does, he know what I, does he know I'm not really producing the kind of fruit that I should as, as someone that loves God? Does, does he know that we didn't tithe 10% to the temple? Does, does he know that we, we worked an hour on the Sabbath? That they would clearly be turning that on themselves. But the thing is, Jesus isn't talking about that kind of fruit. He's not talking about the legalistic kind of fruit that we think, well, if I do all these things, I'm in with God. Jesus is saying that if someone isn't trying to be a disciple, and the way that I've taught you to be in the Sermon on the Mount, if they're not striving for that, then, then you need to think about their motivations. You've heard me say before, one, one of my favorite sayings, is that God desires spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. I know that that's been circulated. I just, I love that saying. Because I think most of us would not like the idea that someone looked at us as a religious nut, right? We don't try to be that way. That's not how we want to be perceived. But I think that happens sometimes when people are all about the religious rules and, and regulations and, and, and doing things that maybe the Pharisees thought were important. But they miss out on what it means to really follow Jesus with their actions every day like Jesus has been preaching about. You know, I hope you're reading the Bible with us as a church. I, I, I hope you are. You'll be blessed if you do. But I also hope you know that, that you can read the Bible and you can read it every day. And you can read it in a year or two years or, or however many times. And, and you can still be a jerk. Or you can do it and you can still be a worrier and it not affect your life and still be anxious like Jesus preaches about. And you can do it and you can still be someone that doesn't grow one bit from it in your spiritual life. The fruit that Jesus is referring to is not something that, that, that happens. It's not a transaction because A plus B is C. The fruit comes from a lifestyle of continually trying to follow Jesus. What Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. And that leads us to the last thing. The true disciples stand the test of time. What we call the, the perseverance of the saints. They're, they're followers at the beginning and they're followers at the end. They're still trying to follow Jesus. 
You know, one of the things that stands the test of time for me, and this probably won't come as a surprise, but is, is food. Have you ever thought about some of our favorite foods are really our, they're, they're our favorite because, because of what it makes us think about, what it reminds us of. It's, it's, it's from another time. We had some, some deacons and some staff over, and, and I made a big pot of, of gumbo like my, my father and, and his mother, my grandmother made. And, and I convinced Michelle to make a, a, a peanut butter pie. And, and not like, it's not like a custard pie. It's like think pecan pie minus the pecans and add peanut butter. You know, it's got carrot syrup and it's gooey and it's thick and it's good. And, <laughs> and both of these things are so much better to me than going to a restaurant paying $50 for the fanciest, nicest cut steak or whatever it might be. And, and honestly, it's not probably because they taste, I mean, I mean, they do taste good to me, but probably more than as good as they taste, they remind me of a certain time in my life. You know, we talk about food like mom used to make. I hate to, to break it to you, it's not necessarily that your mom made it better, it's just that it was your mom. It just reminds you of, of her or, or your grandmother, whoever it might be. And it reminds you of a time when, when maybe things were simpler and, and maybe some, some other people that, that you loved and cared about were alive. And it's your preference. And it stands the test of time. And that's fine when it comes to food. You know, it, it can be that way. But Jesus says, as a disciple, we're not stagnant. Our faith is not contingent upon a good thought. Our nostalgia. Jesus says in verse 24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And I don't have to read the rest of the metaphor to you. You know what, you know what he says, doesn't it? Don't you? Wise man and foolish man, we sing the song. Remember, he's saying this to his disciples. He's pushing for a decision, but these are people that have already made a decision to be disciples. And maybe they didn't know exactly what they were getting into. And so he preaches this sermon from Matthew 5 all the way to, to Matthew 7. And he gets to the end and he says, this is a decision that you make, not once, not twice, but it's, it's a decision that you make for the rest of your life. And, it, and it's going to be different towards the end of your life than it is toward the beginning of your life. And so Matthew tells us that when Jesus finished saying these things in verses 28 and 29, when he finished the Sermon on the Mount, he says, The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. You know, we haven't seen the word crowd in the book of Matthew until, G until uh, all the way back in Matthew chapter 5. Before Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount, you might remember it said there's disciples, there's a crowd. And Jesus called the disciples to him and he preached to them. And now he's at the end of this sermon. And apparently this crowd has been there the whole time and they've been listening. And they're amazed. And the lesson that we get from that crowd, these, these would-be almost not quite followers of Jesus, is that Jesus is different. He's different from our normal religious sort of understandings. He's different from, from our religious traditions sometimes and, and the teachers that we look up to. The way of Jesus is different than our preferences. And our faith has to be more than nostalgia. I ran into a former youth of Eastwood. I guess it was 
two or three months ago. Ran into him at the grocery store. And he told me that he had recently come to church and, and worshiped with us. And I said, that's great. I'm, I'm glad I saw you. I remember, you know. And he said, yeah. And, and I walked away a little sad. And I said, why? And he said, because, well, when, when I was a youth, I remember that, that I was here. And, and all the youth in the church sat together in, in one area. And, and, and when, I was, when I was there, I looked in that area, and there were other people there. And the youth were scattered about across the sanctuary. And I said, you know, I can understand why that would make you sad. I said, it actually encourages me. And here's why. Because EJ, our youth minister, has worked hard to encourage our youth to be a part of our church as a whole. And not to be separate from it. And so we have youth, not today because they weren't here. But we have youth playing instruments in worship. We have youth in the sound booth. We have youth working in children's church. We have youth seated throughout our sanctuary by friends by parents and by grandparents. And, and you know, to me, that is, that is more encouraging than to see them huddled in their own little corner because, because they're a part of our church. And he said, oh. And he walked away and he still had a sad face. And I don't think it was because he was trying to be hard-nosed or hard-headed. I can just tell him that he didn't get it. And I wondered that if he would be able to be a follower of Christ in a setting that was different than what he was used to, than what he was accustomed to. If our discipleship is going to stand the test of time, sometimes we have to reimagine for us what it means to be a follower. What it means to be a follower away from our parents, away from our home church. What it means to be a follower away from children sometimes when they leave. Away from spouses sometimes after they pass away. Away from, away from whatever it might be that we think this is what it used to be for me to be a follower. Sometimes even in a society that seems hostile to our beliefs. What does it mean for me to be a follower in this setting? And the truth is Jesus sets the bar high in the Sermon on the Mount. He does. And you, if you try to follow his words, you're going to fail. You're going to miss the bar. But Jesus says the true mark of a disciple is not someone that's perfect. It's someone that never fails. It's someone that tries to follow him and then keeps trying to follow him and then keeps trying to follow him every day of their lives. I hope that today, whatever it means for you to follow Jesus today, I hope it's different than what it used to be. And I hope that you keep trying to do it. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, it is... It's a pleasure and a privilege to be a Christian. To call ourselves little Christs. But sometimes we, we think that that is what it is for someone else. Maybe, maybe a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. And, and, and God, when we get caught up trying to measure our walk against someone else, God, we're bound to get discouraged. And so remind us today that each one of us have a path to follow. Remind us today that each one of us are unique as believers and unique as disciples. God, help us to choose following day and every day after today. Not just to believe, but to follow. Give us the grace and the strength that we need to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.